Welcome to Forward Guidance. I'm Jack Farley, joined as always by my co-host in crime, Joseph Wang. Joseph, great to have you here. Hey, Jack. Good to see you again. Hope you had a great vacation. And I by did. the way, yeah. Go ahead. for the guys who don't know, Jack's shows hit 1 million views today. It's a remarkable milestone. So congratulations to him. Thank you, Joseph. I couldn't do it without you. You, you uh, have been pivotal in it. I'm really grateful I got you on. Joseph, so I was on vacation, didn't look at CPI, PPI, didn't look at housing starts, didn't look at the Fed funds rate, let alone the stock market. Uh, and so I, my mind was completely empty, just hiking, relaxing. I come back, Joseph, and I'm like, Joseph, what do you want to talk about? And you're like, let's talk about Zoltan Postar's thesis on Bretton Woods 3, 3.0, which is the most complex, abstruse, fascinating thesis that I've probably encountered in macro and probably just in all sort of intellectual pursuits. Uh, it's extremely broad ranging. And I was very humbled uh, today reading Postar's dispatches. Of course, I'm talking about Zoltan Postar, the uh, you know, interest rate strategist, legendary interest rate strategist at Credit Suisse. Joseph, here's what I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just give my you know 30,000 foot view take, and then I really want your help in understanding it and getting into the weeds. Basically, I think the argument can be summed up by the, the phrase that central banks can print money, but they can't print wheat and they can't print oil. And the problems that the global economy now faces are not problems that can be fixed by central banks because a global a central bank, if there's a money market issue, central banks got it. Joseph, that's what you used to do when you were at the Fed, a senior Fed trader at New York uh, branch, I might say. If, there, you know, if, if, if there's illiquidity in the treasury market, they can fix that. Uh, if interest rates are too low, too high, they can fix that. There are all sorts of levers and pulleys the Federal Reserve can pull. However, if the price of oil is at $140 or $240, if you know emerging market countries are facing severe starvation because of war and shortages, there's nothing central banks can do. So that's my 30,000 foot takeaway. Uh, what, what am I missing? No, that, that's a really good overview. And for you guys who don't know, Zoltan is like the gold standard for um, short-term interest rate strategists on the street. And what's awesome is that um, you can actually find all of his work if you Google it. If you Google Zoltan, Global Money Melts, you can actually find it on the internet. He's very widely read. If you're interested in plumbing, you have to read him. And if you follow at the Bond Freak Randy on uh, Twitter, he will also keep you abreast of his latest notes. So definitely check on Zoltan if you're interested in the plumbing. So Zoltan's piece stirred up a lot of publicity because like you mentioned, Jack, he, he gave a very good global macro overview of what he thinks is going on. And he's think he's saying he's going to go a bit further than what you mentioned, not just central banks can't print um, all the stuff that what's happening now may suggest potentially um, kind of a new monetary order that he calls Brent words three, where there might be kind of a split in the system, which previously was dependent upon a unipolar, a unified system where we had the United States guaranteeing, let's say, safety of the oceans and free trade, but now you have more risk now and the system might bifurcate. Um, but I think maybe what Zoltan is best known about is his plumbing. And so he looks at this through a plumbing angle. And I think I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a overview of what he's talking about there, just analogize. So Zoltan looks at the world through the lens of, um, let's say, money. And he uses a framework that Perry Merling, which is who was a professor in monetary economics and also a really smart guy that you guys should 
uh, read up about. He has actually a, a free course series on the internet if you ever want to know about monetary economics. It's all free and it's it's really well done. So in that framework, there's money you can think of a, a number of prices of money. One is par. The second is interest rates. Third is and third is FX. And so from this lens in money, par would be, for example, if I have a bank deposit, let's say $100 in a bank, I'm able to redeem it for $100 in cash. So my bank deposit, which is really just a liability created by a bank, is able to trade at par with dollar currency. That's, that's And of course, if you're a bank and you have reserves, you can redeem that for currency at, at the central bank. Um, the second price of money is interest rates. Now that's the price of money for future money. So I have money today and uh, basically moving money from today to tomorrow. How much interest rate um, am I willing to forego or do I have to pay to, to get that money today or to lend it out for tomorrow? It's, it's what equates money today with money tomorrow. And of course, foreign exchange is just between dollars and, and other types of money. Um, he, he takes this framework and he, he applies it to what's happening into the real economy. So one thing that's really important to note is that in the monetary economy, when you have differences, let's say in par or in interest rates or in FX, the central bank can do a lot of, uh, has a lot of power to fix these things. If I go to a bank with a with $100 deposit and the bank tells me, I'm sorry, I don't have any more currency, well, the central bank can step in and it can lend currency to that bank. And so then that bank can make good on that $100 deposit and give a $100 bill. Same for interest rates. Um, let's say that the interest rate uh, I'm facing here is different from what a foreigner faces when the foreigner wants to borrow dollars abroad. Then the Fed can step in and do like FX swaps and things like that uh, to fix that problem. And if you are a central bank that targets an FX exchange rate, uh, like a lot of emerging markets, the central banks usually can do a lot to, let's say, protect a peg or influence how the currency strength or weaken it. So that's one side. And he takes this framework and he analogizes it to, to the commodities world. And I think it's a really brilliant way that he goes about thinking about this. Um, for example, one thing he notes is that um, let's say you are um, a shipper, right? And then you have to get financing, you have to lease a ship and then borrow money to lease the ship, buy a bunch of commodities, and then ship that over to, let's say, from Russia to uh, China. And you get paid after you, you deliver the shipment, and then you can repay your loans. Well, that's a lot like basically interest rate, right? So you need money today, and you're going to pay back money later tomorrow after a period of time. Um, another, way that he, another way that he analogizes this is between, let's say, par. Um, if I have a commodity shipment today, and I'm sending it from China, Russia to China, I expect it to get there, right? Just like I expect to have change of deposit to a currency at a bank. So that's par. Um, but if you have a world where the geopolitical stability is breaking down, you can't really assume that anymore because maybe that shipment gets confiscated by pirates or maybe by um, somebody's military. So that par is broken because there's more geopolitical risk. And when you have these frictions in the plumbing, you can have the central bank come in and save the day, like you mentioned, Jack. But when you have it happening in the real world, well, you know, there, there's not a lot you can do about it. And so when you're seeing all this disruption that's happening right now, there, there's not a lot of ways to fix it. To fix it, you need political solutions. You need uh, a unipolar world where at least a lot of countries to work together. You need people to protect the shipping. Um, 
things aren't you need to be able to have the shiprats work as they used to right now what's happening for example is uh because this disruption you have a lot of russian oil that's selling at a discount that has to be rerouted everywhere to end up at india or china and that kind of extends the um the length of time kind of like raising interest rates and when you raise interest rates in the monetary system you reduce demand and when you raise interest rates so to speak in the real economy you're reducing supply and that's kind of what we're seeing right now and so i think zoltan's macro picture is that this is going to be very inflationary because fundamentally you're changing the global order all these disruptions that were happening in the real economy by analogy um you know, there's no easy way to fix them and they have inflationary implications. And something I think, Joseph, is that not only is Zilton saying that central banks are currently unable to meet the challenges of the supply chain, the commodity price surges head on, but that they never could because there's two different, you know, there are two different realms. One of the nominal realm, in which central bankers thrive because they can fix problems by moving, you know, trillion dollars from the right side of the ledger to the left side of the ledger. And then there's the real world where real oil is being shipped on real sh ships, and those ships are on in real water, and they can't go on certain routes if there is a war going on. And there's nothing that Jerome Powell uh, or any other central banker can do about that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think. I think we we are used to a world where supply chains just work, and if you have a problem, it's a down the demand side. And central banks are basically geared toward managing aggregate demand. You raise interest rates, reduce demand, you know, inflation goes down, boom. But this other side, the supply side, there's a huge geopolitical element to it. It's a real economy thing. You need real ships to police the seas. You need governments to work together. Um, that there, that's that's out of the realm of central banks. And Joseph, what have you made of the ruble's rebound? You know, it dropped, I think, somewhere around 50% uh, in response to the sanctions. But since then, the, the ruble has rebounded, and it's pretty close to its pre-war level, which is astonishing, given how uh, powerful, or we thought at least, the, the sanctions on uh, Russian goods uh, were. Yeah, that that's a really interesting point. Well, you know, when it comes to, so they basically have capital controls now. So when you when you control who can sell, who can buy, you can kind of shape the price. So that that's something the authorities can can always do. Um, and it's it's actually the textbook thing that you should do when you have a, a crisis like this. So let's say back in the uh, let's say the Asian financial crisis, all the Western powers were telling the East, the Southeast Asian countries you should have free capital flows, blah blah blah. And what happened was with it was all the foreign capital and a lot of domestic capital just fled and their currency imploded and it made the problem even worse by having capital controls you're actually um, you're actually making the problem better because you're preventing a lot of money from panicking and leaving and uh, it gives you more control over the interest rates um, but I think what you're mentioning though is that there's a there's a broader point here and some people, some people think that this has to do with invoicing in uh, rubles instead of invoicing in dollars and so forth for, for energy. But that, that's not really the case. Um, because if you're really thinking of, think about it, if you're paying Gazprom with dollars or paying with rubles, it's not that big of a de deal. The, um, so if I were to pay Gazprom with rubles instead of dollars, and let's say I'm a U.S. company, well, I have to go and get rubles somewhere, right? So I have to take my dollars and then I have to sell them to someone, probably the Central Bank of Russia, to get rubles and then give give rubles to Gazprom for um, for gas. 
So at the end of the day, someone in Russia owns more dollars. So that's not really the case. It's really, it's really more about the fact that you know there are capital controls, and also people in Russia um, are forbidden of owning foreign exchange. So if they have foreign exchange, they have to sell them for rubles, and that's the real source of demand that that's strengthening it. It's it's not this invoicing in um in 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 rubles rather than dollars. I don't think. Joseph, key to Zoltan's thesis is that the dollar reserve system will eventually fray and that particularly offshore dollars, euro dollars, that creation process uh, will stop for reasons I don't exactly understand. But And then because there are no euro dollars, they, there's no dollars to be recycled back into treasuries. And, and so that will cause interest rates um, to rise. What what am I what am I missing there? And then also sort of how are the mechanics of us moving to a dollar reserve system to a yuan reserve system, a Chinese yuan reserve system, which you know, Zoltan indicates he thinks is uh, possible, if not possible. Yeah, that, that's a, that's one of that's the, kind of the second big point uh, that Zoltan's making. We're going to have uh, another the world is going to fragment from a unipolar world, and we're going to have a smaller, incipient, and growing RMB system. And, and Jack, as you mentioned earlier, there's no shortage of people calling for new Bretton Woods uh, over and over again throughout the years. And oftentimes, it actually takes the form of, a, you know, of an RMB system. So I th a lot of times what happens is that when, let's say, uh, the U.S. buys gas or oil or, from, or something from, from a foreigner or maybe buy goods from China, what the foreigners do is they take those dollars and they have to put them somewhere and they put them in U.S. treasuries. And that is a stable demand for U.S. treasuries. And which is a really good thing because, as you know, the U.S. issues more and more treasuries every year. We, we have basically a forever deficit. Right now, it's about a trillion and a half this year, and it's estimated to be uh, at least a trillion every year for forever. So it's good to have someone who's willing to hold those treasuries. If we go into a world where people don't really need as many dollars, and it's not because, uh, well, it, it could because it, it could be because there are there are alternatives. But if there are fewer people willing to hold dollars, there's fewer people who need to invest them in treasuries, and that has implications for interest rates. Um, if, for example, let's say. Uh, China or the Middle East are beginning to use another currency like the RMB, then they're going to be looking for alternatives to park their RMB. They're going to have fewer dollars to park, and so there's less demand for treasuries. And I think that's actually a, a real, real concern. Um, before this piece, Zoltan was mentioning that there seems to be a change in the safe haven status of the dollar because um, the West was willing to confiscate. Uh, the central bank reserves uh, by Russia. So what that means is that if you are a foreign central bank, like you're Russia or China, you have dollars that you that you use to support your currency, and you have to put those dollars somewhere. Um, unlike you or I, they don't really put it at a commercial bank. They usually put it at another central bank. And if you put it at another central bank, you're depositing it with another government. So that's inherently political. And what happened this time is that those reserves basically got confiscated. And by willing to weaponize this, that means in the future, some central banks are going to be more hesitant to be investing dollars uh, in treasuries or um, in, in deposits at the Fed 
it's a national security issue. Let's say you're like a huge country with a lot of reserves and maybe you have territorial aspirations that are very important to you, but maybe not uh, frowned upon by the West. Well, you got to be able to survive a world where your multi-trillion reserves get confiscated, right? And the way to do that is to diversify out of dollars. It doesn't have to be to uh, rubles or something else. Uh, what Zoltan suggests actually is, is commodities. And it kind of makes sense. Commodities you own outright in your home, in your home, and um, they're actually useful. But how would that work? You know, people know what it's like to have money in a bank. A central bank knows what it's like to have reserves, to own treasuries, to own bonds. But you know, people, what does it mean for a huge financial institution like a central bank to actually just own? You know, what they're going to have a bunch of uh, in, in the basement. They're going to have a bunch of gold and, and barrels of oil. Like, what's that going to look like? Yeah. So actually, uh, they do have a lot of gold in the basement. Uh, so if, if you guys ever um, have some free time, you can go to uh, the New York Fed. They actually have a gold vault tour and they'll take you uh, to a huge vault, seven floors beneath the surface of Manhattan. And you'll see just, uh, just huge, huge uh, gold bars. The gold bars are actually so big that um, the people who work there have to wear steel shoes because if they drop them on their feet, it just break their bones. So yeah, they, they actually do just hold gold somewhere but i think what they also hold though and we already do this is stockpiles of commodities like for example in the u.s we have spr you have the exact same thing in china um, actually china has enormous grain reserves too uh, u.s does as well but they're not very big so you can think think of this as taking your enormous uh, financial surplus you get from trade and just keeping it in the form of commodities that you actually use now think about let's say today we have riots in Peru because inflation is too high. Having a whole bunch of dollars, if they had a whole bunch of dollar reserves, that's not super helpful for them right now, right? They can go and they can buy grain, but you know, the prices of grain have gone higher. Um, if we're in an inflationary regime where globalization is breaking down, it makes a lot more sense to actually have, um, let's say multiple supply chains and a lot of commodities because that is actually what people need to live, not really uh, digits in a computer screen. Joseph, true fans, uh, you know, you've got many true fans in the chat, and they know your theory of inflationary hikes, that interest <laughs> rate hikes by the Federal Reserve could actually exacerbate inflation rather than curb it. Yep. What does the recent developments we've seen over the past three months, as well as Zoltan's thesis, in particular, uh, how Bretton Woods 3.0 is going to be way more inflationary than uh, Bretton Woods 2.0, how do, does that make your theory of inflationary hikes more likely or less likely uh, to, to, to be correct and why? So, you know, the thing about inflation, so inflation means that everything, the prices of everything costs more, right? That means if I'm an investor and I want to build a factory, all the steel costs more, all the labor costs more, I'm going to need a bigger loan that increases the demand for money. And where does money come from? It's created by commercial banks, right? So if you have a supply short, if you have, let's say, this price shock and people believe that it will persist, then the price of everything goes higher and I'm going to need more money to do everything. And that kind of creates a cycle where, um, let's say, uh, demand begets higher prices and so forth. But with respect to the narrow part of inflationary hikes, now that has to do with the structure of the banking system. So you have an enormous amount, enormous amount. So banks in the past, 
they would borrow, say, short and you know, lend long. That's a, that's the standard thing. But they don't. Their liabilities today are not really indexed to, let's say, LIBOR because they don't borrow in the money markets anymore. It's all retail deposits, and that's due to QE, and that's due to fiscal policy. So as rates go higher, the banks are going to be more incentivized to create more credit. That's the big difference. As rates go higher, their interest margins increased rather than stay the same. They increase because your funding costs are floored at zero because there's so many retail deposits. And so as they raise rates to try to tame inflation, banks would be more willing to create credit. And as prices go higher, companies that need to borrow will need to borrow even more because everything will cost more. So in my view, inflationary hikes is still on. And just just, okay. just aside from that, and there's another mechanism. Now I talk, this is a private sector mechanism. But think about the government now, right? Enormous, enormous fiscal spending every year, enormous interest rate bill. What happens to that interest rate bill when rates go higher? When rates go higher, the government, you know, let's say $23 trillion in uh, marketable debt, their interest bill goes higher as well, right? How do they pay for that? Well, they basically print more treasuries, so they borrow more. So then again, that's a doom loop. So if we get to a world where inflation is structurally higher, let's say interest rates to Fed funds goes to 5%, you know, that's actually historically quite low. Well, what happens to the interest rate bill of the uh, federal government? It explodes and explodes and basically escalates. It's a runaway train. So the whole world that we have is built on structurally low interest rates, higher interest rates, higher inflation. It blows everything apart. So if your theory of, of inflationary hikes hold, and we should note that this is contrary, you know, most of what you believe is, is uh, you know, somewhat orthodox, but this is it's a pretty heterodox idea, it's, it's fair to say. Uh, but if, if inflationary hikes is correct, and, it, and your theory holds, then a lot of uh, uh, bank lending in aggregate will explode higher. However, yes. Zoltan is saying one particular niche of bank financing will not will not be strong and there is actually will be a liquidity squeeze in that part of the market and that is uh the uh, uh banks extending credit lines to commodity players so i understand very little about this market however i understand that the recent volatility in commodities both up and down has caused a lot of commodity traders uh to uh, be sort of be, have their margins called and have their, their margins ratcheted up by, by banks. Zoltan's thesis, if I understand it uh, here, and this is his piece that came out last night, quite quite hot off the press, is that there could be a liquidity squeeze there that could cause uh, all sorts of problems. And he's comparing it to 2008. He's comparing it to the 2019 repo crisis. Uh, Joseph, what's going on here with these commodity players and the, and the credit lines? That is something lurking in the background, Jack, and, and you, I think you, you you described it really well. So uh, this is the basic problem of a commodities producer. So I invest a whole bunch of money, and let's say I, I dig up coal, and I sell that coal, right? But here's the thing. I have a bunch of coal, and, and the coal price fluctuates every day. So I'm worried. What if, you know, let's say I dig up coal, and when I go to the market, the coal price fell? Then, you know my revenues go lower and it's hard to plan that way. So to be prudent, what a commodity producer does is that it goes and it hedges its production in the futures rate market, in the futures market. So let's say it buys a whole bunch of coal, so say it mines a whole bunch of coal and then sells the coal forward in the futures market. So 
locking in the price. Okay, so let's say then when it has a call, it can deliver the call into the futures contract, locking down, and it doesn't have to worry about any price fluctuations. But here's the thing, though. Let's say let's say it's a 30-day contract. I ding, I'm digging up commodities for the whole month, and then I already sold my call forward, due for delivery in a month. The futures price fluctuates every day, and um, if you play in the markets, you know that you have to put up margin if you are if your contract fluctuates a lot. Now let's say that coal prices are you know on fire, and so the futures prices keep going higher and higher and higher. That's okay for a coal producer because it actually has coal, and the coal that it has in the ground is becoming more and more valuable. But it it is short that futures contract. And if you're short something and the price goes higher, you're in a lot of pain and you have to put up uh, liquidity. You have to put up margin to your broker. Now, you're good for this, right? Because even though the the futures position is getting more negative, the actual physical coal you own is becoming more valuable. So you're actually on net. You are uh, solvent. Everything is okay. But you need liquidity to give to your broker to meet that margin requirement. And that liquidity need is is not something everyone has, especially if you if especially as prices exploded a lot higher, then those margin requirements could be enormous. Now, this happened to let's say the largest public coal company, uh, Peabody, and they had to get an emergency loan from uh, Goldman Sachs, and they had to issue a lot of shares. But it's not a solvency problem; it's ultimately a liquidity problem, as Zoltan and you just mentioned. Now, the thing is, a lot of these commodity producers—they're private and they're huge, and we don't really know how much exposure they have. So maybe they have bought a whole bunch of oil, which they own, and they sold a whole bunch of futures contracts short to hedge that production. So that's the prudent thing to do, and they are not insolvent because as oil prices go higher, their oil is worth more. But they need to have some liquidity to give to their broker to meet the margin requirements, and that those numbers could be huge. And um, I think that's what Zoltan is mentioning right now. This liquidity squeeze could be very large. And he suggests that maybe central banks can come in and backstop it. And central banks, of course, will not do that. <laughs> uh, they've already said that, that that would never happen. The reason that won't happen is that, well, for one, you have commercial banks who get ready to do that. And you know, commercial banks are well-equipped to do something like that. And they already have, as was what happened with Peabody. But central banks don't like lending to people that they don't regulate because um, you know you don't really know what happens to the money so you notice that when they lend to someone it's always let's say banks that regulate or at least to to uh, entities that someone else in the government regulates like a money market fund or um, or a dealer so I think that's a huge liquidity squeeze that that could be happening uh, my sense is that you know the commodity sector is big but it's not systemic it's not going to be a problem um, there's no there's no interconnection between uh, let's say the liquidity problems of a commodities producer and everyone else. But most importantly, there's no solvency issue. So if you're willing to you lend that, you're going to get your money back because it's backed by commodities that have gone up a lot in value. So it's not really a big risk to a bank and you'll find lots of people willing to, to lend. But uh, what if the risk to banks isn't that it goes up, but that it goes up and then it goes back down? And uh, like it did in the case of Newcastle Coal, uh, which is, a, I think, a futures contract of coal that went up something like 300% uh, last month, and then it's crashed down, I don't know, 50% uh, down there. So if, if, at the t- if at the peak, the bank uh, loan manager was like, oh, well, yeah, we'll lend against this coal, it's, it's going up, and then it wouldn't be good. So it's, it's, uh, they would have lost a lot of money. So it's, it's 
you know, commodities don't just go up, even though the structural trend might be yeah. going up. Uh, it could be extremely choppy. That can be hostile to to bank profitability. And if that is the case, uh, I mean, Zoltan is in the camp, if I understand him, that the the ECB or the Fed has to supply emergency lending assistance, ELA, uh, yep. or just flood the system with reserves via quantitative easing again, which again, to people who you know, uh, read uh, Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, they would be shocked by that because like, oh, isn't it doing quantitative tightening? Uh, Zoltan thinks thinks not, uh, right? Yeah, so I think Zoltan, Zoltan's view is that if there's a huge liquidity need, you know, maybe the banking sector would need more reserves than you otherwise thought they would because now they have this huge need to being able to backstop the commodity producers. Now, and that could be true, but, you know, it's really hard to know. And uh, I'm kind of skeptical as to how, how big this problem is. Um, so you're right that there's there's volatility here in the company prices, but, you know, this is this is a, a perfectly hedged trade. You know, you own the physical and you're selling the, uh, the futures. So it's a liquidity issue, not a solvency issue. In, in theory, the prices move together, right? So um, if, you're, if you're losing money on your futures contract, you're making money on your physical commodities. It's a basis trade, basically. And eventually it converges um, when, the, uh, when the contract is delivered. The volatility is not good, and it'll make the broker uh, stomach churn and the commodity people really upset. But you know, as long as they can hold through, uh, they're going to make they're going to make that uh, they going, they're going to make money. Mm. Zoltan, uh, sorry, I called you Zoltan. <laughs> um, <laughs> Joseph, I know you have a ton of respect for for Zoltan. I believe you've read pretty much close to everything he's he's written. Yeah, yeah. But Zoltan is awesome. Yeah, yeah, uh, and I obviously have tons of uh, regard for him as well. It sounds like you you do disagree with Zoltan's. Uh, this aspect of Zoltan's thesis, because you know, I've got it right in front of me. Zoltan says central banks are on, regarding uh, the commodity pressure. Central banks are on the hook either way; they just don't realize it. And he lays out three options that central bankers can can resolve this uh, commodity issue: no uh, emergency uh, liquidity assistance to uh, uh, commercial banks, so no ELA is op number one. Number two is ELA for equity, which is kind of a central bank nationalization option. And number three is ELA uh, on an unsecured basis, which is kind of like the moral hazard 2008 option. Uh, these are just such wild scenarios that are, I think, part of the reason that this is, theory has taken uh, you know the the financial world by storm is just because these are scenarios that you don't you don't think about that often, right? Yeah, I, I think he's really envisioning a world where the commodity producers are in big, big, big trouble. Uh, they could be. I mean, you don't really see it, though. I mean, let's say, look at the producer prices. They're going to the, the share prices are, are going to the moon. Uh, so the commodity traders that we, we know, for example, let's say, uh, I think the private ones uh, have noted that they, they have some trouble. So maybe some people in the space, uh, the traders have some problems, but uh you know, overall as a sector, I mean, a lot of the producers seem to be doing fine. Their share prices keep going higher. And, you know, the market is not always the best measure of information, but it, it seems like everything's okay. And listen, if I was a bank, I would happily make these loans. You really don't need a central bank to do this. Banking sector has a lot of space to make loans. Making this is it's kind of a sure thing because it's secured by commodities. So um, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a, I, I think, unless there are political reasons for, for not letting them being being able to lend to these producers or traders it doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem. So Zoltan thinks that 
quantitative tightening is unlikely or that it will it will it's, it's unlikely it will be successful and the the federal reserve central banks will be forced to inject the financial system with liquidity that's interesting joseph because uh we got a, a, a note from the news today that uh governor Fed, federal reserve governor lael brainerd indicates that quantitative tightening is imminent and that they plan to the fed plans to reduce its balance sheet as early as next month while doing a rate hike and actually, probably two rate hikes. That's what the market is pricing. Yeah, they're, so they're going to do QT that. QT and two rate hikes. I was just looking at the Fed funds futures. Like the terminal rate is something like 3.2%. You know, Joseph, I know you're an inflationista. I know you think the Fed is going to be aggressive. But is there some point at which you think, hey, actually, I think the market is 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 overestimating the degree to which the, the Fed is going to be hawkish? Or are we nowhere even close to that point? So I think the Fed, I think the market is misunderstand, misunderstanding and misunderstanding the Fed. I think there are many people who don't understand that the Fed is fundamentally different now. They're very worried about inflation and they're going to be very aggressive. Now, we saw today, let's say the 10-year went up 15 basis points. And for those who are worried about the inversion between the twos and the tens, it uninverted. So, you know, recession is over, right? <laughs> so I think we have much higher to go for the longer duration rates. I think we'll know more in tomorrow. So tomorrow, what's going to happen is that uh, there's going to be Fed minutes out and they're going to spell out how the Fed is going to do quantitative tightening. And Brainerd has already teased it's going to be aggressive. And I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. It's going to be aggressive. And I think in my view, it will meaningfully steepen the curve. So rates are going to go higher throughout and it will be steeper as well. Um, the market understands the short-term rates, the, the path of short-term hikes really well. And, you know, market is always very good at that. So we can see up to the five-year uh, going up a lot. I think what we, what the market doesn't yet fully understand, or maybe it does, we just don't have enough people being able to put on those trades, is that, uh, let's say, the 10s and 30s are, are going to go up a lot as well. And I, I would expect that to, uh, well, it's starting today and it would continue uh, tomorrow. But so, we'll see. I mean, so listen, this is what the Fed, guys, we all know the trope, right? Don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the Fed. The Fed is telling you that it wants to have a steeper yield curve and a higher, higher rates. So, I, you know, Fed has a lot of power in uh, controlling things like this. So I, I would, uh, I would keep that in mind. Uh, Joseph, the first time we did our interview, it was in mid-December and you made a series of three predictions. They weren't predictions, but you know, you said this is your your base case that the Federal Reserve would be extremely hawkish relative to expectations, way hawk more hawkish than people were thinking at the time. I mean, you know, the the terminal rate then was I don't know, like probably lower than two percent, probably way lower. Uh, that was prediction number one. Prediction number two, it would be bad for stocks, which follows from point number two. Point number one. Point number three is that it would also be bad for bonds. And that cocktail of not only is it you know impressive to have seen each of those things, but each of those things together because historically during a tightening cycle, uh, the long end it's very good for bonds because the economy is slowing and so bond you know it's pricing in a recession. You should you should buy bonds. However, people who have bought bonds over the past four four months have been absolutely annihilated. So Joseph, I'm not saying you're you know you, you've got a crystal ball. I'm just saying that you uh, you've had an extremely good track record since I've gotten to know you. Probably you know more than better than anyone I've seen. So, um, what are you see? What are you seeing for let's say the, uh, you know December 2022? 
December 2022. I know you're viewing that you think the Fed's going to be very hawkish. How do you think it's going to impact the stock market and how about the bond market? Uh, well, first of all, thanks for your kind words. So, you know, I, when I, I think I've been saying quite bearish on the stock market since January and I've been telling people to be very cautious. And you know what? We, we did go kind of basically kept going down. I didn't expect us to have this huge rebound that we have right now, um, but I expect it to fade. And I expect us to go retest bottoms and and uh, beyond. Actually, so the thing is that I think looking at the bond market and through the lens of let's say um, you know recession or not is, is not the right framework. But even if it is, it's being misapplied. Um, so if you think about a recession as having slow growth rates and you buy bonds, sure that makes sense when inflation is also stable. But when inflation is rising and not stable, then you know you can have lower real growth, but still higher nominal yields, right? Um, that's because inflation is rising and bonds are nominal assets. So it doesn't make sense even within that framework. And to be clear, that's not the framework that I use. Um, I expect rates to be, let's say, I expect the 10-year, let's say, to be north of 4% by year end. And I think stocks made the highs for the year and we're all... Coming, correcting for from here on. Uh, one thing that I would note, and I suspect what's happening, is if you looked at the dollar strengthening a lot, and that's a lot of people from abroad, let's say in Europe, afraid of what's happening over there and moving money to the U.S. They're not necessarily buying bonds. They could be buying, let's say, Amazon or Microsoft, basically the U.S. blue chips as well, and that that gets gets some support as well to to the U.S. Stock market, stock market, but that's not going to last forever. But I think that's helping right now. Um, so uh, we'll see. Joseph, the fundamentals for the bond market in 2021, in terms of inflation growth expectations, were abysmal. I mean, growth accelerated and inflation exploded higher. And yep. yet, if you actually bought bonds in March, admittedly after a huge sell-off, March 2021 until December, you would have had a, had had a pretty good year. And the argument that gets floated as to why that's the case is because European investors bought uh, uh, treasuries, Japanese investors bought treasuries. There's a, there was a relentless bid from foreigners who have much lower rates. So if Japanese bonds are yielding zero, a 1.8% 30-year treasury, that's so juicy. Whereas to you and me, it's like, it's crap and it is crap. But um, yo, to, to what degree do you think, you know, I'm familiar. You know, uh, how are those interest rate differentials looking now, uh, uh, given that rates have surged so much in, in Europe? And then, you know, anything else you're seeing in sort of foreign fixed income markets that would that would indicate a healthy, robust bid for treasuries? Uh, Jack, you you know, you hit the hammer out the nail, and you know, Powell mentioned that as well, right? There's a lot of foreigners outside buying treasuries, keeping a lid. So, I think two things I would say to that. Um, well, the rest of the world is, you know, raising rates as well, except Japan. <laughs> except Japan, they're there. Uh, maybe they'll change their mind. They're, but they, they seem to be quite intent on maintaining yield curve control. So that's one thing. Uh, but the second thing is that if you're a foreigner buying U.S. Treasuries, which you, you have to hedge the currency. Um, so let's say you're earning, like, say, two and a half percent on a ten-year. Well, you know, you could lose that in just one FX move, right? 2% in FX markets is nothing. So if you are an institutional buyer in treasuries, unless you're making some kind of currency double play, but mostly these these, buyer, these investors are conservative, they have to hedge the currency. Um, hedging the currency is basically borrowing dollars in short-term money markets and investing in treasuries. That's another way to think about it. 
as the Fed hikes rates, those hedging costs become higher. And because the Fed has a very, very steep trajectory in how it's hiking, those hedging costs will become uh, higher very quickly. So whatever FX hedged yield you're earning right now on treasuries, it's going to get smaller and smaller very quickly. So that was a tailwind, but I think it's going away now. And I think it'll go away pretty quickly, um, definitely by the end of the year, since we're expected to hit, let's say, 2% on, on the funds rate, at least. This is way above my head, Joseph, but doesn't that dynamic also play in reverse, where if the ECB is expected to hike extremely hawkishly, even more so than the Fed, then yep. that would actually, uh, on, a, on a relative basis, uh, cause the, the hedging costs to, to go down. So what are you seeing in terms of the forward rates markets, if you will, uh, in Europe, Asia, uh, you know, everywhere in the world? I know the Fed is ridicu ridiculously hawkish according to the past 10 years as a standard, but what's it looking like in Europe? What's the, the forward rate market looking like in Japan, in, in China, in Australia? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So the ECB is predicted to be hawkish, but their hawkish is nothing compared to the Fed. Um, I think it was three hikes. I'm, I'm not really sure uh, at the moment, but um, that's just nothing compared to the Fed. I I don't really worry about that. And of course, uh, Bank of Japan is quite intent on on their policy, holding the stance of their policy. But things could change, so we, we don't really know. Um, I would think that actually the ECB might try to push back upon what the market is implying. And so that, I think, puts further downward pressure on the euro, probably very significant downward pressure. Um, the ECB is a strange organization, and if you watch their press conferences, you can kind of see that um, some of their leadership, and to be clear, there are some very good and smart people there. Uh, I really like Isabel Schnabel. She has uh, you know, great speeches and all that, but a lot of the people who, who make big decisions there uh, probably don't have any expertise in monetary policy. Um, so uh, it, it's not easy to see what they will do, but it seems like they might actually push back on what the market is suggesting. All right, we got a question from CG, uh, who's followed me. Uh, CG's been a, a loyal uh, uh, watcher of forward guidance for a while. Question for Joseph: Do you see any reason at all for the Fed to do an emergency intermeeting rate hike? No. So, uh, I don't know if they've ever. Actually, they probably have once upon a time. Maybe Greenspan. Um, no. Why? So <laughs> CG said. So, CG, CG asked, 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 yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. To be perfectly clear. Fed doesn't need to do emergency meetings to hike rates. All that it has to do was, you know, Jay Powell just calls in the Jim, Jim Cramer and said, I think rates are too low. I think they should be higher. And boom, rates would be high, hiked immediately. This is yeah. what forward guidance is all about. So or, they, they don't or, really or, need... or our friend, uh, Nick Timoros, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So you, they really don't need any emergency meetings to do hikes. So, uh, but I think that they are very worried. And so I, I think that's why you have Brainerd today coming out and basically saying we'll have rapid QT because they want you to know that the curve is too low. No, the not curve is enough. too low. Yeah. That's saying something no. about the level of the curve, but not the shape. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. The curve is not steep enough and the levels are too low. Yes. The curve right. is not steep enough. Again, okay. So this, is, so this is your your. Uh, the, your view is that quantitative tightening will steepen the curve, not flatten it. Uh, yes. And you have a lot of very, very uh, complex, interesting reasons why you think that. Um, but I, I want to just bring us back to the present day. So you say, you say by the end of the year, you think the 10-year uh, will be at 4%. 
Where do you think the two-year will be, given that, unless my math is wrong, we have six the two year essentially you know, uh, reflects what the, what the Fed is doing and rate expectations. So, uh, where, yeah, by the end of the year, what do you think the two year will be, and where do you think the Fed funds rate will be? Hmm. Well, it's an interesting question. Um, maybe three percent for the two year. Actually, Fed funds. You know, I mean, that's whatever's in the market is about, is about right. Um, so, you know, uh, two to two two and a half, something like that. So I, I'm not, so I think the way that I would look at this is that it's going higher, but at some point it's going to break. And this is what happened during uh, repo. And in my core view is that this has happened, this will happen in the long end. So exactly where it stops, where it stops in my view is when it breaks. And I don't know exactly the time or day. I just think that it will happen. And then that will force an emergency intervention, quantitative easing, yield curve control, something like that. Um, but in my view, that that is the end game, some form of yield curve control. You mean it breaks, meaning bonds sell off so hard and yields yes. spike higher? Uncontrollably. Uncontrollably, yes. That's that's what I view as uh, what would actually be the end. It, it, it doesn't like stop somewhere. What you're doing in the quantitative tightening, I, in my view, is reckless and so it will break the market by break i mean there will be an uncontrollable spike that will restart quantitative easing of some type and probably roll in yield curve control um exactly when that happens i don't know i just know that this is a machine it's unstable as time goes on something something in my view was likely to crack mm, wow and so this this yield curve control that you envision will be not like the bank of japan's first yield curve control to stop rates from yields from going lower but the second version to stop yields from going higher yes the the uh, the uh, conventional way that you would think about this like the, yes. the bank of australia way see joseph I've, I've learned a lot from you um so <laughs> joseph we've got actually got you know to close this out we've got a series of fantastic questions from the audience uh so i'll quickly say someone says so bitcoin is going to be wrecked uh ray ray says that i i would just offer that i'm not entirely convinced that the reason for bitcoin's huge bull run in 2020 was because of the expansion of the fed's balance sheet if you look at the huge bull run in all crypto of 2016 and 2017 that was during you know a very narrow window of relative hawkishness when the federal reserve was hiking rates and enacting quantitative easing although not at the same time so that's just my little hobby horse now let's get to some questions uh ryan melvy wants to know Will Treasury issuance match this desire to steepen the curve? Yellen has some power here. I wonder if that uh, uh, is, is relevant relative to Andy Constant's thoughts on the short yeah, end of no, the curve. No, no, no. Guys, guys, so very, very good question. So when you do quantitative tightening, what happens is that so the Treasury issues new debt to, refet, to re repay the Fed. And the Treasury has power as to where along the curve it will issue. Can issue a lot in the 10 year, a lot in the 30 year, or can issue a lot in the short dated plate? Um, the, the thing is, though, that the Treasury has some guidance that it tries to adhere to that it does. It wants, let's say, bills, viciously short dated Treasuries to be less than to be 15 to 20% of total issuance. It's about in the middle there. Uh, but that's not really the point, though. The point is, even if they were bonkers and they issued a whole bunch of bills, Let's say got that to above twenty that share to above twenty percent, the bulk of the issuance, the great majority of it, would still be in longer dated tenors. And 
also, if you're thinking it from a you know the debt management perspective, they're actually incentivized to issue longer dated treasuries to lock in low rates. It's like if you're getting a mortgage, right? Right. I mean, you're afraid that rates are going to go higher. Well, rates are still historically low. Well, you should take out a mortgage, and the treasury thinks the same way. Yeah, sure. Ten years, I would say two two point five five. That's still historically low. I should take advantage of that. So it's in, in their interest to actually to lengthen their duration. Joseph, I'm really glad you you brought that up. I actually just today um, interviewed Roger Lowenstein, um, financial journalist, author of um, uh, what's it, when genius failed about uh, 1997, long term capital management. Um, yeah, he has a new book about the Civil War, and so we're really getting into the weeds on the plumbing uh, during the, the 1860s. And the North was able to secure long term financing; they were able to issue bonds, long term bonds. And whereas the South relied on short-term notes and certificates, and they constantly had to refinance, and that was incredibly inflationary. So, based on what I, I've learned from history, at least from reading this book and speaking to to Roger, which by the way that interview airs on Sunday, uh, definitely you should check that out. Um, Look forward to it. Thanks, Joseph. Is that yeah? The longer the duration, the less inflationary the money printing is. So, what if Yellen does the Andy Constant plan, which I don't think Andy actually wants? Uh, thinks that she she will uh, and uh, issues all of this short term debt that can use the money that's in the reverse repo facility to uh, you know basically not using bank reserves that because money market funds can buy uh, they can't buy coupon paper uh, so they can only yep. buy short term stuff basically yep. if she does that workaround would that just be ridiculously inflationary? So I think it could be inflationary in the sense that let's say the Fed hikes the short term rates to two and a half three percent then that kind of rapidly increases the interest rate costs the government has to has to pay, right? And how does the government pay interest rate costs? Well, it just prints more treasuries, right? So that could be inflationary in that sense. Um, yeah. So if you if instead they locked in, let's say, low ten year yields, then even when short term rates went to three and a half percent, then they'd still be paying two and a half percent rather than let's say increasing their interest rate uh, expense with short term rates. So so that I think that's that's the angle that, that that's the lens that I would look at this at. So mm. um, it could they could just cut rates to zero again, and then you know short term rates would be even cheaper than longer term rates. But that's that's not the trajectory we're on. Joseph, we've got a comment from Ralph who says, "All caps, smash the like." And yes, please, uh, people watching this, smash the like button. And actually, don't just smash the like button. How about you go ahead and. Uh, smash the subscribe button. Subscribe to the Blockworks ah, YouTube fancy. channel. Yeah, Joseph, I'm like a video editor now. I'm a, I'm a producer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and by the way, uh, just for the people watching, Joseph, you and I have been talking. We have lined up all of these guests over the next two months. Yes. Uh, so we're we've got a you know this is you the the Jack and Joseph show really the Joseph and Jack show that's going to be every single week and we're going to have hard hitting guests. You know, on FOMC day, on, on all of these important events. So stay tuned, and you don't want to not miss that out because you were you know dumb and didn't subscribe to to the Blockworks YouTube channel. So while I'm while I'm in my plug mode, uh, people have got to follow Joseph Wang on Twitter at uh, FedGuy12, and definitely read his stuff at FedGuy.com and his uh, book uh, Central Banking 101. Joseph, now that I've gotten all my plugs in, I gotta say. Uh, got a great question from from this guy called Mud. If you were Fed chair, what would you do to tamper inflation? 
I think Jay Powell is doing the right thing um, by raising rates. This is what I would do, though. And th so Powell over and over again tells you that we can raise rates, but, you know, it'd be a soft landing, not going to hurt unemployment, not going to hurt the economy. Everything's going to be OK. I would actually stop with that framing. And that just that's just ridiculous to me. So, you know, there's always a trade off in everything you do. The trade off to fight higher inflation is to, is to have a little bit more unemployment. Uh, that's just how things are, and you know that's that's what we've always been able to understand as a society. Uh, it's, I mean, it's it's not always you know, sunshines and rainbows. Sometimes there are hard trade-offs you have to make, and it, it's strange to me that we can't even tell uh, tell it straight to people that you know this is what's going to happen. It's not good, but you know we also need to get inflation under control. So uh, you have to stop sugarcoating it. it, it just be honest. Joseph, I think I asked you that same question in December. I said, what would you do if you were Jay Powell? And he said, I'd be screwed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, now if he, if he started hiking rates now, I think things would be a bit better. But um, he was slow, and now now he might have to go faster than anyone expects. And if you look at the short-term interest rate markets, yeah, he's uh, pressing in a lot more hikes, now 250 basis point hikes than, uh, than it was before. Uh, we got a funny comment to comment raise rates 20,000 basis points overnight problem solved <laughs> yeah it, it would solve we would never have we wouldn't have inflation we wouldn't have anything to worry about or everything would be uh would be living in caves <laughs> yeah well well joseph uh i don't think i will time to explore it now but it sounds like you're someone who still has some regard for the phillips curve about the relationship between inflation and unemployment we'll have to explore that on a later episode um yeah but uh, Joseph, it's been uh, great having you uh, as always. And um, yeah, well, oh, oh, I don't yeah. want to ask you. Yeah, oh, um, what the minutes are going to be released tomorrow uh, from the yeah. previous FOMC meeting. We, ex you know, we, ex you and I, we expect it to be extremely hawkish. But what would have, what would have to happen where it's just such a ridiculous, it's such a juicy news thing. It's like even you didn't foresee this that we, you and I would have to do an emergency podcast as soon as they're released. What, what would that have? To, what would that level have to be? Ah, release this and Dow went down a thousand points. What do you say? Dow went, Dow goes down a thousand points. A thousand points. Well, actually, right. I don't even, I'm not even sure a thousand is that much anymore, right? How high are we? Something it's like three like percent, right? Three. It was about thirty thousand. No, that's not. It's a five percent is a threshold. Five percent. Yeah. We, you, give, the, give, the, give me, give me three point three point eight. Three point eight. All right. All three point right. eight. What's three point eight in points? Uh, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, all right. Um, we'll Joseph, see you out tomorrow. Yeah, we'll find out tomorrow. And, Joseph, thanks so much. Yeah, and guys, remember, we, we do have a great list of speakers uh, for the coming two months, all the from the smartest people, most interesting people many of you have heard of on FinTwit. So uh, we're going to try to keep uh, keep the show uh, with a big line of people from FinTwit and from the, from, the, from the financial that you'll be interested in so you won't just have to listen to us all the time. Yes, definitely. And uh, we'll give him a sneak peek. Next uh, Tuesday will be uh, George Goncalves, uh, who understands, you know, he's he's on Joseph's level in terms of understanding the plumbing, which uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. George is a great race strategist. It's going to be a great, great episode. And if you guys don't already follow him, you should check him out. Yeah, George is fantastic. Um, so that should be great. And uh, thank you, everyone, for watching. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.